Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Romans 3.25-26 God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In addition to refuting the false teacher in Rome. Paul is also challenging the Roman Christians to accept a more comprehensive understanding of the work of Christ. If you look up in 115, he says his reason for writing, and he hopes to eventually visit, he says, is to explain the gospel. He says, that is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel, also to you who are in Rome. Maybe Paul is presuming they have not heard the gospel in its fullness. They've not heard his gospel. And he is eager that they would have this more complete understanding so as to be able to resist this false teacher, but also so they might have a deeper faith. And where he is moving them from, or his point of departure, I think is expressed in this verse, in verses 23 to 26. That is, this is their view regarding the work of Christ, in which, notice the atonement is said to be for the sake of release from previously committed transgressions. Now there's nothing wrong with their understanding. Their understanding is true insofar as it goes. But maybe it doesn't go very far and so Paul is beginning with what they understand and is going to build from there. Maybe they're focused on the efficacy of Christ's death and so focused that they fail to consider the resurrection. And in fact, Paul states in the beginning of the letter, he emphasizes the resurrection. And that seems maybe even to be a thesis. Christ's resurrection is where his defeat of death and the beginning of of the rule over the powers is inaugurated. So he's going to expand upon what it means here in this verse to be just and the one who justifies and how it is that those who have faith in Jesus are justified. They may have a very legalistic or law-based understanding. And so the Roman Christians, as we gather from the way in which Paul builds his case, maybe they simply believe that Christ has replaced the need for sacrifice for sin as in the temple. And they may not have grasped the cosmic implications of Christ. 
Maybe Christ's death functions more as an apparent replacement of the temple cult or the notion that it cleanses or wipes away their individual transgressions. In this understanding, there is no further atoning role for the resurrection. And maybe they're looking forward to a future vindication in their own resurrection, but they fail to apprehend the notion of a resurrection life now. That is a present participation in the resurrection life of Christ. They seem to have missed that sin is not simply breaking laws, but it's an orientation to death defeated through Christ's death and resurrection. And this is what Paul is going to spend a good portion of the book of Romans explaining to them. And it's not that the Roman understanding is wrong per se, but their limited understanding, we believe, has left them vulnerable to a false teacher. And in this understanding, this limited understanding, God is concerned primarily with good and bad deeds. We get this in 2.5. And these are the basis of the judgment. Paul sums it up. God will render to each person according to his deeds. In 2.5. In 2.14, only the doers of the law will be justified. But of course, this is not Paul's position. Because he immediately refutes this notion in 3.20. He says that from the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So he's stating what they may believe or maybe what this false teacher is teaching. And then Paul says very clearly in 3.28 that justification comes by faith apart from works of the law. And so the problem is the Romans may have such a limited notion of faith as to imagine it's defined by law keeping. And, you know, Christ satisfies the law and faith is trusting in this fact. And the false teacher has been able to take advantage of their narrow understanding. And so Paul is simultaneously refuting the false teaching and broadening their understanding by presenting his more radical gospel. And I think he's doing this on two fronts. He's showing, first of all, that the problem of sin is more serious than they imagined. And then he's showing that the answer of salvation is also cosmic. It's fundamental. It's all-encompassing. Where their faith is attached to law and transgression... The resurrection faith, which Paul will begin to spell out, it entails cosmic new creation. And so to convince them of this more radical gospel, their basic concepts of justification, judgment, and sin are going to need to be reworked in light of the work of Christ. And this will involve them in a new reading of the Bible that he's going to take up in chapter 4, and we're about to look at. So the concept of the false teacher, which the Romans may share, is justification is through works. Judgment is on the basis of works. And sin is concerned with bad works. 
And this is hardly an adequate understanding of the depth of the human predicament and the need for rescue. So Paul broadens their understanding of sin, moving them from focus on sin as a mere act to picturing it as bondage, bondage to deception. And rather than speaking of plural sins, as he actually does in 23 to 26, Paul is in the rest of the book going to speak of singular sin. As Lewis Martin points out, while Paul uses the word sin in the singular, he uses that rather frequently, he only uses the plural in a very limited number of cases. Martin counts four. I think he may have undercounted. But he says that only when he is quoting traditional formulas does Paul speak of Jesus as having died for our sins, plural. And as long as the Roman Christians think of sins as defined by works of the law, you know, as it says, for the sake of release from previously committed sins, the danger is they will consider the human predicament as concerned with outward works and signs such as circumcision. And in turn, God will be understood through the law as the one, you know, who punishes and rewards. And justice and judgment will also be law-based determinations. And so what becomes obvious by Romans 7 is that Paul's definition of sin is deception in regard to the law, and this is manifest in the gospel, this false teaching of the false teacher. That is, what he's describing in chapters 1 to 3, by the time we get to chapter 7, this is actually an example of sin at work. The Romans are susceptible to this false teaching inasmuch as they have misconstrued the importance of the law, making the law foundational. And so Paul argues Christ is the righteousness of God revealed. He's saying something different. That is, it's not the law that is the righteousness of God revealed. You know, maybe they would think, isn't Paul confused here? Isn't the law the righteousness of God? How can Paul say the gospel is the righteousness of God? And this is actually his thesis statement, or what many take as his thesis statement of Romans. And he may be then building there also, oh, they understand about righteousness revealed, but they may not connect it to Christ. And so Paul's depiction of the work of Christ is righteousness enacted. It's release from a death-dealing deception. This is his chapters 5 to 8. He explains this. And this is a new concept if 3.23 to 26 reflects their initial understanding. The Roman Christians may be similar to Christians today who hold to justification theory. Neither group seems to fully comprehend that in Paul's gospel, Christian faith is a participation in the work of Christ. You know, living his resurrection life, taking up the cross and following him so that we are co-participants in his life, death, and resurrection. 
And this is the means to break free of the bondage to the power of sin. And so salvation is not merely a cleansing, nor baptism, you know, the spiritual equivalent of a bath. And this is what he explains if you look at chapter 6. Note that he begins here in chapter 6 questioning whether they have a full understanding of the meaning of baptism. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. What he's describing is participation in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Christians are not merely, you know, taking a bath and able to live purified lives, but their very world is transformed. They enter a new world. And so Paul's task in Romans is to bridge a gap in the thinking of these Christians. He's going to try to move them from a rather childlike view of sins to a more profound recognition of sin. Sin is not just breaking a law. Sin is a kind of bondage. And then in moving them from that understanding, they will be able to grasp the significance of the work of Christ. He'll strengthen that understanding. And he does this immediately in this context in the life of Abraham. Look at, turn to chapter 4. He demonstrates that the story of Abraham, in that story, the law is not definitive of the faith of Abraham. But the life journey of Abraham, you know, Abraham leaves his home and his country and he enters into a new place. And this story in which he's continually given over to death, that he's facing the reality of his mortality, is definitive. In 4.3, Paul says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul is redefining their understanding of righteousness. Where the Romans may consider righteousness as defined by the law, Paul connects it to this faith of Abraham, which precedes the law. How then was it credited, he asks in verse 10, while he was circumcised, that is, under the law, or uncircumcised, before the law? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Abraham's faith is not defined by the law, as there was no law. Abraham is the prototype of Christian faith. And yet his faith is nothing on the order of that described in chapters 1 to 3 by this false teacher, or maybe even in their own understanding, in which law is determinate. The law is secondary in the life of Abraham. It's a mere sign of the promise of life. Look at verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, 
that righteousness might be credited to them. And so certainly he's the father of the circumcised, the father of the Jews, but Paul is saying he's the father of the uncircumcised. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So Abraham's faith, it stands juxtaposed to the notion that faith is in regard to the law, or that faith is objective and static, rather than dynamic and lived out. Abraham's life journey illustrates this, his active trust in God, his leaving his home country and family, and his continued journey in which Paul portrays it as a journey into death. You know, it's a, a place of the unknown, literally and metaphorically. And this then is the substance of faith. It's participatory. Abraham in this, you know, if we're thinking of justification theory, he does not feel a guilt-stricken conscience before the law. That's not even a possibility. Law does not figure into the equation at all. Rather, Abraham's faith was exercised in his orientation to the promise of life in the face of death. Look at verse 13. Without becoming weak in his faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And so Paul concludes, you know, he's taking them to a new place. They've never read scripture like Paul's reading it. They've never understood Abraham like Paul's understanding Abraham. He's reading the story from a Christocentric understanding. And he's defining then, he concludes his depiction of faith in a reference to Christ. And the notion that faith is resurrection faith. Verse 23 to 24. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited. As those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He's saying that's Abraham's faith. Righteousness is not a legal term for Paul. It really has nothing to do with the law, but it pertains directly to Christ and his making right. You know, the Greek here is simply the notion that something is wrong and there is a right wising, that things are being set right that are wrong. Where death reigned prior to faith, through faith, Life reigns in Christ, through Christ and resurrection faith. And this is what it means. This is what he means up in 23 to 26 when he says that Christ is just and the one who justifies. I think this is new information for them. The Romans may have had a weak view of the resurrection, viewing it as a kind of reward at the end of their life a kind of end point of cleansing from sin. But Paul's view is more radical. 
cleansing and freedom from sin, they're not simply the achievement leading to the resurrection, rather cleansing and hence freedom from sin is the freedom of resurrection. Resurrection is the liberating event, bringing about freedom from the law of sin and death. And this then is enacted in Christ for all who have faith, as illustrated in the resurrection faith of Abraham. One's life course is liberated from death through faith. Christians are liberated from the very structures of sin through resurrection faith. This is the atoning, liberating work accomplished by Christ. It's displayed by Abraham. It's definitive of Christian faith. The resurrection orientation is itself salvific in its defeat of the orientation to death, which is sin. And this is what Paul explains in Romans 5. He takes all of this a step further juxtaposing Adam and Christ, who he will call the second Adam. In 17 of chapter 5, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned, through the one much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Christ Jesus. Through one death reigns. First Adam, death reigns. Second Adam, life reigns. Verse 12, death reigned in Adam, and this accounts for the spread of sin, and death spread to all men. Verse 14, he just says, death reigned. Verse 15, the many died. Verse 17, death reigned through the one. Is there any confusion about the problem? Death reigned, and sin then reigns in death. Just so, he says. In verse 21, sin reigned in death. Here, sin is a singular problem. It's ethical. It's epistemological. It's ontological. That is, it has to do with our whole ethical being, the ground of who we are. It has been captured. And the human race, not just in physical death, but it's certainly that, but in an orientation in which you know, life is oriented to death and life is just death dealing. And Paul then in chapter 7 will describe this as a primordial deception. He refers to it, he'll refer to Isaiah. He says this is a covenant with death. He'll sum it up as the law of sin and death. In chapter 7 he explains how the dynamic of this lie works in conjunction with the law. Here's where the law enters in. Or maybe just simply human understanding of the law. There is a fundamental deception, he says, in regard to the law. In verse 11 of chapter 7, sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. And in this chapter, Paul describes the topography of the human subject in which this lie, this deception takes hold. Chapters 5 and chapter 7 then explains how it is. What's the problem? How it is that, that the law of sin and death has captured the human race? 
And chapters 6 and 8 describe how Christ frees from this death-dealing bondage of sin. I think this is new territory for the Romans because they hadn't thought at this depth. And far from the law playing a guiding or defining role in Paul's gospel, as it apparently does in their gospel, for Paul the law is the occasion for sin. And it may be that it is not only the false teacher implicated in this deception, but the Romans, through their own inadequate notion of atonement, that this false teacher has been given an opportunity. But I would say this is not the particular trick of this teacher or a peculiar weakness on the part of the Romans. As Paul explains, this deception in regard to the law is the universal human problem resolved through the work of Christ. In his gospel, the law is displaced with a participatory faith in Christ, which nullifies the law. It nullifies the law of sin and death, specifically. Now we understand the fullness of what he means in 3.25 to 26. Christ is not simply an atonement for past sins, that's true, but it is, he is an atonement who enacts his righteousness through resurrection faith at this present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.